Welcome to another episode of Impolite Company, a show where we discuss all the things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. We talk about politics, religion, and all the other things that truly matter. And now, here's your host, Scott Wingerter. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Impolite Company. I'm your host, Scott Wingeter. On this show, we talk about all the things that you cannot talk about in polite company, like religion and politics. Today, I am exceptionally excited to have James D. Agresti, the president and co-founder of Just Facts. He has two decades of experience in public policy research and analysis. His work has been cited by a broad range of media outlets academic publications, and PhD scholars. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Brown University and utilizes his background in physical science to apply practical, empirical approaches to the often capricious world of public policy. Just the Facts is a nonprofit institute dedicated to publishing comprehensive, straightforward, and rigorously documented facts about public policy issues. To accomplish this, they use objective standards of credibility to determine what constitutes a fact and what does not. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Scott, I appreciate you having me here. I really do. So right off the bat here, I want to ask a question. Uh, I'm going to play the role of Pontius Pilate here for a second. What is truth? Love that question. And there's a really simple answer. It's conformance to reality. Hmm. In this day and age, you hear people talking about my truth, your truth. That's not truth. The moment you say it's mine, it's not truth. It's got to be objectively true to actually be truth. That's right. I, I, that drives me nuts, all right? The, 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 this whole postmodern idea that truth is an objective. The, the fact that somebody can make a claim like that, all right? It's a truth claim in of itself, right? There's no such thing as absolute truth. That's an absolute truth statement right there. You're shooting yourself in the foot argumentatively. Uh, and you just proved to me that you're an idiot if you think that. <laughs> so I love it. Now, let me let me get into how these standards of credibility work uh, in trying to find the objective uh, facts uh, that your uh, research foundation looks for. Your background seems to be a little bit more scientific in nature. How does empiricism lend itself to the study of public policy. Isn't public policy one of those like soft social sciences? It absolutely is, but I think it's become unhinged um, throughout history and even more so in recent years because people uh, extrapolate from, well, here's a fact to um, this is a fact when really the data doesn't move from one to the other. It does not flow. It's a non sequitur to use the Latin term that does not follow. And it is super important to realize when we are uh, overgeneralizing a fact to something that it's not. Because when you enter the realm of public policy, you're talking about governments. You're talking about the uh, decisions that impact the people all over the globe. Life or death impacts. And to be sloppy with your thinking or sloppy with your data, sloppy with your logic or sloppy in any way, you can hurt or kill millions or billions of people. And that would be objectively bad then, right? Well, <laughs> you know, it, that's a great question because there are people who would say, well, there's too many humans anyway. It <laughs> wouldn't be bad if we, we, we uh, right. culled two-thirds of the population. But uh, under 
biblical principles, under, I think, the values that most people are raised on in this world, and particularly how everybody feels about themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's okay if those people die, but I have to live. And we all have that built into us for the most part, except for a very few people. Yes, I think it would be bad. Now, to say it's objectively bad, well, then we get into religion, philosophy, and, mm-hmm. and that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Well, sure. But I think that, I mean, I am a huge proponent on the show all the time. We talk about it, natural law, and it's observable in nature, right? And just what you said right there is like, I can, I can think, well, I have to live, but if those people over there, they can die. I don't care about them. That is a violation of that natural law. If I can understand that my life has value, I can understand that all men's lives have value. And, uh, you know, that I, I love jumping down rabbit holes like that. Maybe we can get into that stuff a little bit later, huh? Sure. <laughs> All right. I This idea that, um, you know, science and, you know, history, for example, that's my background, uh, have nothing to do with each other, I think is a silly notion, in my opinion. Uh, one of the history textbooks that I... Uh, had uh, in throughout my master's degree was called the landscape of history by uh, John Lewis Gaddis. And I pulled this quote here and I want to get your opinion uh, as a scientist. So this was a um, sort of a symposium where he had a bunch of different social scientists in um, a room and this guy was given a speech um, and he also had a bunch of uh, scientists, you know, biologists, chemists, uh, and uh, physicists all together in a room listening to this uh, historian give give this speech. He goes, quote, I get curious about a problem and start reading on it. What I, re- what I read causes me to redefine the problem. Redefining the problem causes me to shift the direction of what I'm reading. That in turn further reshapes the problem, which further redirects the reading. I go back and forth like this until it feels right. Then I write it up and ship it off to the publisher. Uh, so this was uh, words uh, by a historian named McNeil. McNeil's presentation elicited expressions of disappointment, even derision from the economists, soci- sociologists, and political scientists present. That's not a method, several of them said. It's not, not, uh, it's not parsimonious. It does distinguish between independent dependent variables it's hopelessly confuses induction and deduction but then there came a deep voice from the back of the room yes it is it growled that's exactly how we do physics thoughts on that yeah i think the individual is is 100 correct that if if you go into a research project of any sort whether it's social sciences or physical sciences and you've got a thesis and you've let's just say you've bifurcated. It's either got to be this way or this way. Mm-hmm. And then you dig into it and say, well, you know, there's two other possibilities here I hadn't considered. Now that I've expanded my knowledge, I have to say, could it be any one of these? Or could it be a combination of these? And that's, uh, you have to be flexible in your thinking. Um, at the same point, you don't want to be so uh, flighty that you fall down stupid rabbit holes and waste your time. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it is 100% correct and if we are just stagnant in our thinking, we, we end up uh, producing false options. Hey, either this or this. No, it could be a combination. It could be that. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And my problem with science today, uh, from my, my own opinion on I'm not a 
a scientist uh, per se, but you know, I think we rely too heavily on empiricism. Um, and there's all of these other tools in your tool bag when you're pursuing truth that you need to be able to pull out and utilize, you know, um, David Hume, uh, used this. And I think this is a really great, it's not to say that empiricism is bad. It's just a tool, but it shouldn't be your only tool, right? Uh, he's this example. I can observe every morning that the rooster crows and then the sun rises. So from that, I can extrapolate that, you know, the rooster causes the sun to rise. Well, if I'm only using empiricism, that's a perfectly logical and reasonable conclusion to come to. But using other forms of logic, I know that that is actually not true. And so that's what I, I have a hard time, you know, picking things up and, and reading them uh, from a scientific perspective when it only utilizes empiricism. I think when we need to pursue the truth, uh, we need to use every single tool that's available to us. And I think, uh, it's getting harder and harder every day for the average person to do that. What's your opinion on that? So uh, the rooster and sun uh, example is, is an example of a logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it's very common in social science. It's, it's extremely common in the media. It's uh, association equals causation. And that is not true. Just because two things happen together doesn't mean one is causing the other. Correct. It could be total coincidence. It could be a third factor causing both of them to occur at the same time. There's, there's many different options. So um, I don't think that this proves necessarily uh, the value of empiricism or the point you're making, which is, hey, we shouldn't be focused entirely on that. I think when the rubber hits the road, you have to have hard data. It's got to be empirical. And there's a great scientist uh, named Richard Feynman, uh, after so Einstein died, he was considered the world's greatest physicist. And you know how we describe people who aren't too bright? We go, well, yeah, he's, he's no Einstein. Well, PhD physicists would say of a, a colleague who didn't show a lot of promise, he's no Feynman. <laughs> you know, it was a joke amongst them. Yeah. And he said this, and I think it's totally true in the realm of science. The sole judge of scientific truth is experiment. Mm. And, and I think... You can use all these tools that you're talking about. It's good in formulating theories and, and looking down different avenues. But before we can say, follow the science, we better have hard empirical data. And, and that word has become, that phrase has become utterly ridiculous because it basically means follow what I say. <laughs> I say it's yes. science. Follow it. And Feynman talked about this, I think it was in the 60s, he said, we have a real problem with people abusing the word science. This is, you know, half a century ago. He says, when people say science shows this and that, they're misusing the word. When you're actually talking about science, you don't say that. You say this experiment, this evidence, this observation proves this or that. I think that whole idea of follow the science, I'm an expert, that's something that we've inherited from the progressive era. Uh, the progressives were real big on their experts. You know, you got, got to talk about guys like somebody like John Dewey, boo hiss. I hate that guy. All right. John Dewey was a progressive and he was the expert. And he's the one that gifted America this wonderful public education system that we have today. And he threw out all of the old ways of doing it, the classical education that, you know, has worked for 2,500 years, right? Uh, gave us things like the Renaissance, 
uh, the scientific revolution, the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, our entire modern world, right? We throw all of that out because John Dewey, the quote expert, you know, is following the science and he knows better. I hate stuff like that. You know, whenever you see in a news article, uh, the New York Times is famous for this. Mm-hmm. Experts say, you can just replace that because in reality that what they're saying is the experts I have chosen to quote say, which is the same as saying I say, right? right? It's just, a, yeah. you can find an expert to say almost anything on any variety of controversial topics. It doesn't prove a damn thing. Am right. I allowed to say that on this podcast? Hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, along with Dewey, there's, there's another uh, character from that era. Uh, actually, I think he's a little earlier. Horace Mann. He's from my alma mater. And uh, he had an interesting quote. He was talking about the common school, meaning public schools at that time. And he said, let the common school be established and worked out to its potential. And basically, crime would evaporate. Everyone would be smarter. Mm -hmm. Life would be better for everybody. And you just have to ask the question, has it turned out that way? Right. Yeah. Horace Mann predates Dewey by about a hundred years. So Dewey's doing all of this stuff to our public education system in the 1930s. Horace Mann was 1830s establishing. He's basically taking all the the school models. He smashed together what was uh, present in New England uh, that was originally set up by the Puritans that came over in the 1600s. And then he took the Prussian system uh, you know, Germany and smashed them together and made that, uh, the quote common school in all of Massachusetts. But yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, it's, he, he, he set us up with the system and it propagated and then Dewey got a hold of it and totally mangled it. What was, what was incredible about Horace Mann's system was that it was based off of the Prussian system and, but the Prussians were smart enough to realize that they shouldn't throw out all this classical education. They'd look at somebody like you, you know, oh, he's smart. He's going to go to Brown University uh, and, you know, do all these great things and become this great engineer. We're going to give him the classical education. But Scott, he's dumb as a box of rocks, all right? So off to the public common school for you, and they're just going to teach me, this is where it literally comes from, the three R's reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it was always a measure of social control, uh, from, from man. And especially I think Dewey, Dewey just took it up and dialed it up to 11. Mm. Um, but we have a problem here in our country, uh, today. And I, uh, it's more than just our country. It's all over the world. Uh, the legacy media, the mainstream media, they're constantly lying to us. We don't really have an idea of what's going on or big tech ends up censoring these, these stories. So how do we even know what's true anymore? How do we navigate this difficult waters of, you know, there's so much disinformation out there. How do we use something like just the facts in order to figure this stuff out? Sure. So I think the first principle in all this, because there's just so much out there, there's not enough time to determine what's true or not. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to be agnostic about this Mm -hmm. until I can take the time. If it's important enough to take the time and figure it out, I'm not going to decide one way or another. I think that's wise. I think a lot of people who consume 
mainstream media and that's all they consume, I think they'd be better off if they were deaf, dumb, and blind because at least they would know they're ignorant. Now they think they're informed. They have an incredible amount of arrogance and believe things that are not true. And that's how you hurt yourself and others. Now, towards that end, uh, in 2021, we launched an initiative we called Just Facts Academy. And it's primarily directed at uh, high school and college students. So it's a video format. They're kind of fun and entertaining. But it's also good for anyone who wants to know how to sort out fact from fiction. And in those videos, which in totality are about a half an hour altogether, there's, there's eight of them, you really learn how the principles for sorting out what's true from what's not true. And th- these are reliant upon our standards of credibility, which are things that Just Facts has honed over the years to determine what constitutes a fact. Do you want to unpack what those uh standards of credibility are like and how those work so i think it would take too long to unpack all of them but let's just do a few of them okay or maybe one yeah. okay so one of them is raw data make sure before you decide it's this way or another that you dig as far as possible back to that raw data and can put your hands on it and can understand it take a little time to dig back uh, you know in recent years even academic journals have been started have instituted policies saying you have to provide that raw data. Yeah. In the past, even these, the people who were peer reviewing these articles, peer reviewed journals, the gold standard of scientific credibility, they didn't have access to that raw data. Mm-hmm. So if that raw data is available, even if you don't have the ability to uh, sort through it, if it's incredibly complex, others can. But the point is to get your hands on that original primary source data because oftentimes what happens is the people manipulate it in such a way or misconstrue it in such a way to totally remove its implications. I'm thinking of a, a, an, an example that is extremely important and that just means so much for the future of our country, particularly young people. So there was a, a paper published in a peer-reviewed journal, and it showed that nations with high national debts relative to their economy above 90% tend to have lower economic growth. That means worse health care, worse life expectancy, lower standard of living, whatever it may be. It really impacts people on, on a broad range, more poverty, everything. So uh, the study, however, had a, a mistake in the data. So they, that, the authors of that study posted that raw data. So people were able to find the mistake. That's the way it should work. So these other, these other scholars come along from, uh, from an institute and put out a contrary paper saying, hey, we rechugged this data. They are the ones who found the error. And we found, no, there, there's no relationship between uh, high national debt and poor economic growth. And what I did is I dug into their paper. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it. And guess what? Their ultimate raw data showed exactly what the original paper showed. Even with the error, once you correct it, it's the same exact result. But they, when they published that paper, sunk it, I forget, 10 pages deep into their paper and wrote a mis- misleading overview that the media just mindlessly parroted and everybody's off to the races. Hey, let's spend money, let's print money. Never a problem. Well, guess what? We have a problem right now. We have inflation. Mm-hmm. Many factors contributing to that. But one certainly is that the government uh, spent a whole bunch of money it didn't have. The Federal Reserve printed that money 
and gave it to the government with the promise to get it back. And guess how they're getting it back? By decreases in effectively through the value of your paycheck, mm-hmm. which in- decreases your standard of living. It's, it's, a, it's a snowball effect. It's absolutely horrific. And a lot of it stems from the misinformation. Hey, we can just, government can borrow all it wants as long as we have the printing presses. No harm. Yeah. Now, I, I hope everyone realizes that that $1,500 uh, check that you got from the IRS back in 2020 during the, you know, when the pandemic first hit is now costing you $3,000. <laughs> That's exactly how that works. Exactly. Um, and I loved your, your point on going in into the... Di- and getting a hold of the raw data. That is so huge, those primary sources. When I mean, you say primary sources to a historian, I, I light up, right? Um, any book review or any, uh, you know, digging into uh, a source uh, that I would be using for any paper that I write, the first thing I do is I read the introduction to the book or the paper or whatever it is and see what, you know, what are we talking about here? And then the very next thing I do is I flip to the very back of it and I look at all of those sources. Because I want to know, all right, where are you getting your information from before I spend all this time on this book, you know, that I'm supposed to be digging in here? Like, are you biased here? Who is your sources? I want to know what other historians, what what are the secondary sources that you're quoting? Did those people have any biases? All of that's super important. And that's just, you know, one slice of the pie there that you're talking about from a historical perspective. It's equally true, I would imagine, with all of the other, you know, different disciplines that, you know, deal with these sort of things. Imagine the game telephone when you're a kid, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody has a phrase and they whisper it around the room. But at the time it returns to that child who originally came up with the phrase, it becomes totally distorted. Mm -hmm. The same thing occurs in academia all the time. Mm -hmm. And I know this. Because what I try to do is dig back to that primary source. So let's say I'm looking at a paper, and uh, the paper says something. I look at the footnote. I go to that footnote. They're citing somebody else. Sometimes I'm digging five deep. Mm -hmm. And by the time I get to that primary source, what I originally thought from this original paper turns out to be loaded with a bunch of caveats. It's not nearly as certain as they made it at. Sometimes it's the exact opposite of what they said. Uh, a, A great example. So there's a Yale Center on Violence Prevention. I'm probably butchering the name, but it's something like that. And, and they wrote a, a book, uh, excuse me, they wrote an article about the gun control, and they cited my research on it. Uh, so I'm intimately familiar with the research. Right. I see the citation, the link come in. I'm like, oh, they're sending us traffic. That's cool. And I get there, and there is a, a statement that uh, high-capacity magazines, which are, you know, above 10 rounds. right. Rarely figure into self-defense. And I'm think, scratching my head and I'm going, I didn't write anything about that. But they've got me cited as the source for that. And I went and rechecked the research and I'm like, yeah, I didn't say anything about this. Mm-hmm. So well, how can I possibly be the source for this? Yeah. yeah. And it, that's just such a ridiculous claim anyway, like on its face. You know, if you have a Glock 19, let's say, all right, that's mm-hmm. a high capacity magazine. It, that I guarantee you there's plenty of Americans that use that for self-defense uh, in, in situations. It's so just an absurd idea. Anyway, <laughs> I'm moving on. <laughs> um, so let's jump into uh, some practical uses of what it is that you do uh, and try to pull something that's kind of in the news that just sort of uh, broke this week. Uh, 
the New York Times just admitted that the laptop from hell, which was first reported by the New York Post, is real. And now remember, this was Hunter Biden's MacBook Pro that, you know, he got drunk or was high on crack or whatever, and he left it at the laptop repair guy's shop in Delaware, right? And this idiot put all of these, you know, videos of him smoking crack and doing all sorts of, you know, unspeakable things <laughs> on and left it there. Um, and the story broke in late October of 2020, you know, a couple maybe a week before the election and Facebook and Twitter and everybody just censored the hell out of it, shut it down. And it could have been one of those stories that dramatically, uh, it was definitely an October surprise. I'll put it that way. Um, and they shut it all down. And now all of a sudden, you know, two years later, they're like, Oh uh, yeah, actually that was real. Uh, how do you, how do you deal with stuff like that? Well, we exposed it. We blew the lid on it with an article. Uh-huh. We followed up a couple months after the election with a video. Um, but, you know, I, I look at Leslie Stahl for, from 60 Minutes interviewing President Trump and saying, this material can't be verified, mm-hmm. right? The, the emails can't be verified. Well, that, that is uh, ridiculous on its face. All you have to do is see, talk to the recipients of the emails, which the New York Post did, mm-hmm. and ask them, did you receive this email? Can you produce it? Is it the same as the one we're seeing on this laptop? And sure enough, they jived. And that's essentially the new, what the New York Times says. We looked at these emails and we confirmed them. Well, that's how you confirm them. Mm-hmm. It's a simple thing to confirm. So I think... Once something like that happens, there should be a big red X between your eyes and Leslie Stahl anytime you see her on TV and her producers and 60 Minutes because they've totally discredited themselves as utter hacks. Mm-hmm. You say, well, they've done good journalism. That's fine. But guess what? When the stakes were high and the opportunity to tell the public the truth was against their agenda, they failed. They failed miserably. They did the exact opposite. They misled the public. We tend to have short memories and go, oh, I like the show. I like this. I think we need to start keeping a list and checking it twice. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. And it, it, look, these people aren't stupid, okay? They know how to do exactly what you just said. That's what they do for a living. So if they're not stupid, then the only other conclusion I can come to then is that they intentionally did it and hid it away from the American people because the orange man is bad. I mean, that's the only conclusion I can come up with. And it's a problem because when you start digging into all of the things that the Biden family in particular has been dealing with uh, in all of these trouble spots all over the place, you start to get a a pretty nasty picture of what's going on and we're going to intentionally allow something like that to slide in order to get this guy in office it's insane to me have you been doing any uh research into any of this uh stuff with ukraine and the biden family and how all this ties together yes i've been doing it for years and this is really important given the current situation in ukraine Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't understand is that Joe Biden and his family have been allied with Russia and maybe 
who may be in hold of extortionary evidence mm -hmm. on him. Yes. Right? Which may explain why he's been slow to do certain things, wouldn't let the jets come from Poland over to mm -hmm. Ukraine, uh, doing some things, but only under pressure, only mm -hmm. after his party comes to him, only after public, public sentiment is extremely, hey, we have to help these people. They're being mercilessly killed. They're killing children. But he has moved very slow on this. Yes. So, number one, his son received, I'm trying to remember the year now, uh, so I'm not going to do it, but it, it's, it's in the last decade or so, um, a payment of $1.5 million. Excuse me. I'm forgetting my numbers here. In the millions. No, I think it's $3.5 million. It's $3.5 million from a Russian oligarch. Yeah, this was the this was the mayor of Moscow's wife mm -hmm. who ended up giving him. And yeah, it was three point. I have it here somewhere. Uh, yeah, three point five million dollars. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yep. So, what were the circumstances for that? You know, this was paid to a company co-owned by Hunter Biden. The notation on the check says consulting agreement with a number. What possible service could he be offering to this person? Right. So who knows if this was some sort of bribe, kickback? We don't know. But the point is, somebody in Russia knows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So Hunter Biden, the son of former Vice President Joe Biden, reportedly traveled 411 times across 29 countries in connections with deals on behalf of his company or associates with foreign governments and oligarchs. This is from a New York Times, uh, I'm sorry, a New York Post article. And, you know, he's got all of these sweetheart deals that like, God, I, I mean, I'm just as qualified as Hunter Biden to get. I wish I could get, you know, I, I know nothing about the oil and gas industry. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and neither does Hunter Biden. You know, can can somebody from, you know, the Ukrainian oil and gas company Burisma, I'm available to serve on the board uh, of Burisma, too, for eighty three thousand dollars a month. All right. Just give me a call. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable what occurred. And, and if you look at the timeline, you can see that Joe Biden actually went to Ukraine and promised U.S. support to increase their fossil fuel production right about the same time that Hunter was awarded this contract. Mm -hmm. The oligarch who owned the company Burisma, or was the primary owner, was heavily allied with the Russians mm -hmm. and the previous president. And when the previous president lost the election, he fled to Russia. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh -huh. Then Biden steps in and tells the current president, if you don't get rid of your chief prosecutor, who, by the way, is looking into this oligarch and Hunter, who had just seized some of the oligarch's property, I'm not going to give you this billion-dollar loan guarantee that the United States is going to give you. Unless Poroshenko fired the prosecutor general as part of an anti-corruption efforts, he said, quote, I looked at them and I said, I'm leaving in six hours. Uh, if the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, you can't do that. Uh, you know, you, you have no right to, his, uh, negotiate. That's, that's the presence. You know, they said, call him. He goes, I'm leaving in six hours. All right. So unless he's fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch. He got fired. Direct quote. Yep. <laughs> that's straight out of Joe Biden's mouth. Yes. And what happens after that is really interesting too, because, when the new president, who's now the current president uh, of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, yes. became, uh, took office, uh, within three months, he fired that prosecutor. And by the way, during that same 
the, the prosecutor that Biden was installed after Biden fired the old one. Mm-hmm. During that same talk, Biden referred to that prosecutor, the new one, I'm just going to call him Biden's prosecutor, mm-hmm. as solid. He said, this guy is solid. So let me tell you what this solid guy did. Mm-hmm. He dropped all charges against the Russian oligarch. Mm-hmm. In three years in office, he prosecuted no one of note. He was the best man of the current president. In other words, he was my boy. Yeah. Right? This is my man. He's going to do what I want. Um, so when the new president, who's the current president of Ukraine, comes in, he fires that prosecutor within three months. He appoints a new prosecutor who starts looking into the oligarch again. Yeah. He also was on that phone call with Trump when Trump said, hey, we have concern about corruption. And the, the president said, we're going to look into this because that president was elected on an anti-corruption platform. Yes. So think about what the media and the Democrats did with this. Joe Biden had a quid pro quo. Right. He said, you fire that prosecutor, you're not getting taxpayer money. That's right. That's your money, that's my money. Uh-huh. Okay? Then uh, Trump comes along and says, I want you to make sure, check into this and make sure it's okay. Now, all of a sudden, they're accusing Trump of a quid pro quo. Right. No. Impeach him. Right. It was Biden <laughs> who had the quid pro quo. That's right. So what they do is they accuse people of the very same things they're doing, yes. which is interesting because someone from the Biden administration just... Uh, Accuse the Russians of that, yep. and I think they do it too. Of course, but so do you. Yeah, so do these people. It's right out of Saul Alinsky's book, "The Rules for Radicals." That that's the entire strategy of these leftists. Whether I don't care if they're Russian communists or American communists, that's what they do. They create problems, and then they come in and they solve it. They they accuse people of doing exactly what they're doing so that then all their bad deeds can then be pinned on them. It's it's terrible, and it's all because we don't believe in truth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's a moral failing mm-hmm. you know, on the uh, level not just of the people who tell the lies, but the media who parrot the lies, and also people who believe them. Because we all have a confirmation bias mm-hmm. where we want to be told what we, what we believe already, things that fit what we believe, we want to hear them. Other things, we just stick our fingers in our ear. And we all have a moral responsibility to say, you know what, I'm going to listen to things that don't necessarily agree with what I currently think. That's the only way I can learn. And even if it turns out to be wrong, at least you understand why it's wrong. That's what's so insidious about all the censorship from big tech um, by censoring people that are, let's just say they are telling something wrong, and it is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, you never give other people a chance to respond to that. So the people who, who believe in it never hear the other side of the argument. Everybody's the, uh, the worst for it. Albert Einstein said this. Um, let me get the word, wording right. Science can only flourish in an atmosphere of free speech. That's word for word. Yet somehow Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg think they know better than Einstein about how to make science flourish (laughs) by censoring anything that goes against their narrative. Yeah. It's absurd. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It's interesting getting back into the Hunter Biden stuff. So Joe Biden was the point man when he was vice president. He was the point man in Ukraine. And... Hunter goes to Ukraine and he gets a sweetheart deal, right? $83,000 a month salary from uh, Burisma, uh, an oil and gas company, and he has no background in oil and gas. 
The only other country that Joe Biden was the point man on was China. And do you know anything about uh, any sweetheart deals that Hunter Biden purportedly got from China? Oh, absolutely. That, that, that's the famous big guy thing. Yes. And by the way, that was found on the laptop and that was corroborated, confirmed, verified by another recipient on that email, yeah. Tony Bopolinsky. That's right. Who said, yes, I received the email. So here's the interesting thing about this. And a lot of people don't get this nuance. So you have a distribution list for the emails and they're dividing up basically the portions of a Chinese energy company that they're going to have a, a slice of. It's called CEFC. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they list the initials of everybody and the percentages they'll get. So, uh, you know, GH, I, I don't remember the exact initials, but there's like five people on the email, right? Or four people. Mm -hmm. GH, 20%. Ba, 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 this one. H, 10% or whatever it is, right? So H is Hunter. He's the only one on that email chain with the initial H. Mm -hmm. And then it says 10 held by H for the big guy. Yep. That is clearly money that Hunter Biden is holding for the big guy who Tony Bobolinsky said that's how he always referred to uh, Joe Biden. The big guy or my chairman. That was Hunter's phrase for that guy. Yeah. So it's clear. It's as plain as could be. And you don't think people in China... The government doesn't have this info mm -hmm. and might not might be holding it over Joe Biden's head saying, you keep it in, in, in check with us because um, we've got this on you. We'll right. ruin you. We'll ruin your family. We'll ruin your party. The odds of that are extremely high. And, and I would say this too, uh, right early when the Ukraine uh, situation exploded, I want to say it was two days later, so it almost got no attention. Uh, Biden canceled uh, uh, sanctions that were put on China for trade by Trump. He just erased them right when nobody was paying attention. Yeah. It's, um, I'm going to quote Keith Melton, who is uh, a civil, or not civil war, pardon me. I'm going to quote Keith Melton, who's a uh, Cold War historian. Uh, he has a, this book, um, and he uses the acronym MICE, all right? What, I'm a, if I'm an agent, all right, I'm a CIA officer or a KGB officer, and I'm, you know, out there and I'm, I'm hunting for somebody to, and I'm trying to recruit them to spy for me, right? The acronym is MICE. Money, idealism, compromise, ego, all right? That, those are the weak points in the armor. That's what I'm looking for if, if I want to you know, vet you to see whether or not you're going to be a good spy. And with, <laughs> with the Bidens, you have two of those things, right? You have the money, of course. They have lined their pockets with all of this money from, from Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs, uh, Communist Chinese Party, uh, the Bank of China. It's, it's absurd, of course, money. But now, again, it's compromise. Like you said, they are compromised. The president of the United States is compromised by Russian oligarchs and by the Communist Chinese Party. And when he was running uh, in the Democratic Party, I remember him coming out there and saying, China, oh no, the China's a good, they're good guys, right? They're not bad. Uh, you know, we need to work with them. You know, that should have told you right there. You know, these are the people that are literally conducting genocide right now on a whole group of people. Um, in Western China, and yeah, oh, those, they're swell, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. um, 
it's it's a problem and we need to hold this guy these guys accountable um I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm getting a lot of these facts from Peter Schweitzer's books. Uh, and he, he's real big on the idea of, it's called Ganshi, which is a literal translation. It means closed system. And it, it's easy describing this. It's, it's literally the good old boy system that we call it down here in Texas uh, that you have going on where you're establishing all of these uh, social contracts uh, or excuse me, social contacts and it's all on based and predicated off of your name. In China, you always say your last name first. So having the name Biden opens up doors for you because he was the vice president, he was the point man, and now, of course, he's president of the United States. And you just got to ask yourself, is America better off or are the Bidens better off with these dealings? Yeah, and, and there's a whole bunch of people along the way that are compromised, and that received money, mm-hmm. and they're embedded in our government. Um, there was a, a breach back in 2014 of the Office of Personnel Management in the Ob- in the Obama administration. I'm on that list. <laughs> yeah, so you received the yep, notice saying your personal data may have been compromised. Mm-hmm. So let's tie this all together here with everything we're talking about, sure. because this is unbelievable. Right. It, it did not receive a fraction of the attention it deserved. Correct. So... That office has the background check records on every person who'd received a millions of people who received a federal background check. Yep. Now, when I used to work in, in, in designing jet aircraft engines, I had a, a gentleman who worked for me who had security clearances. Mm-hmm. And one day, uh, the, you know, the spooks called me and asked me questions about the guy. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I went and talked to him. And by the way, this guy had retired and came back and was working as a contractor. He loved it. Amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, I got some, fault, some uh, you know, uh, a phone call for some of your friends checking up on you. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, get this. So I, I'd say this guy was in his 70s. He goes, they called my girlfriend from high school mm-hmm. to say, is there anything fishy you've seen about this guy? Any reason we shouldn't trust him? Right. Okay. So this is unfiltered dirt on basically everyone of interest in our government mm-hmm. that is now in the hands of China. Yep. Compromise, they have it. Yeah. So when you fill out this paperwork for uh, OPM, uh, you got to go back seven years and fill out every single address that you lived at. You got to put a contact down, who somebody who knew you at that address. Uh, it's, it's a very comprehensive, I mean, my file is probably that thick. Uh, and you got to do this every five years and renew it. So, and they keep the records. So as you, you know, go through, and especially if you're like a 20 year, you know, military guy, uh, that, you know, has been in the Intel community for this entire time and you got top secret security clearance, right? I mean, by the end of it, your, your OPM file is going to be this thick and they're going to know everything about you. It has your social security number on there. It has your mother's maiden name on there. It has everything that you can think of that could personally compromise you in that file. And they hacked the entire system and stole the entire thing. And you didn't hear anything about it. It was very troubling to me and the rest of the people, uh, you know, and I was still involved in the Intel community back in 2014. We were all like, what? <laughs> but yeah, you know, but 
It didn't make the news because it would have embarrassed the Obama administration. Plus, every bit of dirt that they've ever picked up on you, unfiltered. Hmm. Hey, if somebody said it, it goes in that file. That's right. They don't check to verify, it's in there. No, and I don't have access to the file. I have no idea what other people have said about it. It's, I mean, I, I'm assuming it was fine because I, I kept getting my security clearance. But, you know, yeah, it could be anything. You know, true or not, how do I know? But, you know, it's something that could be damaging to me. If that is exactly what we're looking for, like I said, the acronym MICE, money, ideal, compromise, and ego, right? That's how you recruit a spy. And that the Chinese were masters at, at, at that sort of thing. And it's a big, big problem <laughs> for sure. Um, how do we move forward here with, you know, this stuff? How do we fight back against, you know, the tyranny of big tech, how do we fight against the disinformation from the, you know, Praetorian Guard media? Um, and how do we fight out back against these leftists that are literally trying to pervert truth uh, and destroy, in my opinion, all of the institutions of our republic? I get that question a lot. Yeah. I mean, we're fighting the most powerful corporations in the world that are literally have tried to keep the truth about extremely important things from people on many, many levels. I give them, tell people to do two things. Mm -hmm. Number one, if you know the issue, speak up. Oftentimes, a lot of people want to say something and they're afraid, they don't want to cause uh, confrontation. That's why I, lo I love the name of your show. When yeah. I heard that, Impolite Company, I'm like, yeah. that's me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Speak up, say something. If they brought it up, that, that opens the door. You bring it up as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying, you, you know, you, you create an issue, but they start, the, you, they start it, you finish it, if mm -hmm. you understand. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You can be nice, but say, no, this is the way it is. This is why this is false, and this, these are the facts, and you need to go check them out, okay? Secondly, ask, how do you know that? If it's an issue you don't know, ask them how they know that. So, oh, I read it in the New York Times. Hmm. So uh, the New York Times, everything they've ever told you has turned out to be true? Yeah. You know, like Trump colluding with the Russians, was that true? Yeah. You know, Hunter Biden's laptop being Russian disinformation, was that true? Uh, Nick Sandman uh, approaching a, a Native American and getting in his face, was that true? No, none of it was true. So if that's the depth of your research, you don't know if it's true. Yeah. Just have that conversation. Get people thinking. I tell my students all the time, there are two of the most dangerous questions you can possibly ever ask, all right? And it's going to get you in a lot of trouble, all right? How and why? <laughs> Those are the two most deadliest things you can ask. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I'm going to quote John Adams here. Uh, facts are stubborn things, right? Um, and I'm super excited to hear uh, that there are people like you out there, you know, fact checkers. That's, I, I started laughing so hard when those, that became a thing on, on Facebook, uh, you know, and, but to know that there's actually a legitimate place that people can go in order to, uh, you know, start vetting some of these sources and use these uh, principles and these, the system that you've built uh, is an exciting idea to me. Uh, how can people get access to the different things that you offer, your Just Fact app, uh, your other articles, your videos, and, and how do people find you? 
So we're at JustFacts.com. We also have JustFactsDaily.com, uh, JustFactsAcademy.org. Um, but the best and simplest thing to do, because we're not a daily news organization, mm-hmm. is just sign up for our emails. You get an email. We average less than one per week. So we're not going to inundate you. But that ensures big tech doesn't get in the way between you and the facts. Simple and easy to do. Highly recommend that. I, we get comments from people uh, sometimes that are ideologically opposed to the facts we're presenting saying, you know what? I learned something new today. I didn't want to hear that, but I learned it. I'm better for it. And I, I think uh, no matter what your views are, we're going to challenge them. We're going to bring you facts from all sides so that you are equipped. You know what's going on. You're not just, that's the difference between being brainwashed and informed. You have all the facts. Nice. And if people wanted to dig in a, a little bit deeper, uh, you want to tell us about your book here? Sure. So um, that book is the culmination of about 14,000 hours of research conducted over 10 years. And uh, it's about the reasons why I went from being an atheist to a Christian. Um, I was raised in a nominally Catholic household. We went to church, but I never really bought into it. And before even high school, I basically came to the conclusion uh, there was no God. The Bible was no different than the Iliad or the Odyssey or any other ancient work of fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the age of 25, someone gave me a Bible, and uh, I was actually reading it in their car, kind of laughing at some of the Proverbs. Uh, One that jumped out at me I thought was hilarious was, uh, though you grind a fool with a mortar and pestle, you will not remove his folly from him. So my friend said, here, take it. And I said, no, 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 I don't want it. But he, he said, take it. And I, I read the thing from, from over the course of a year and really looked at it critically and decided, you know what, this is true. Mm-hmm. And since that time, I conducted a ton of research, which is compiled in that book, um, that basically shows people there is hard evidential evidence. Evidential evidence. <laughs> Good word. Yeah. <laughs> hard evidence for uh, the accuracy of the Bible, the existence of the God, of God, who loves us, cares about us, personally knows us, and wants the best for us. Amen. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the, the Iliad. The, the Iliad is one of the most uh, well-documented ancient texts in existence. It's written in Greek. Uh, we have, you know, several hundred copies from, you know, dating from, you know, 500... 400 uh, BC uh, of the Iliad, but it's actually only the second most well-documented ancient text. And the first is the Bible, uh, the the different books that constitute the New Testament in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, So fascinating stuff. Um, I I think it's interesting. You remind me of C.S. Lewis, your story there. You know, I'm going to, I don't believe it. No way, no way, no way. And And the hounds of heaven sounds like sniffed you out, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, the evidence is extremely strong, and it, it's so multifaceted. And people say, well, what is the most compelling piece of evidence? I don't think there is one. I think it's the totality of the evidence mm-hmm. that really adds up to the point where any reasonable person is going to say, this is true. Yeah. My, even just the, the simplest argument is, oh, look, there, it's, it, either there has to be something that's self-existent and eternal. All right. Now that's either God, the creator of everything, or it's the universe itself. There's really no other alternative. Um, and and when you 
you know, Occam's razor that and, and really look at all the evidence, you know, the majority of the evidence lies right on that whole, it's God, it's created, you know, you get into like theological argument, uh, how all this stuff works together, how, you know, earth is in what scientists call the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you compile all just that, just that simple argument right there, like it's to me a no brainer, you know, there has to be, uh, a self existent, eternal being a knowledgeable personality that put all these things to work when you boil it down to even something like dna what is what is dna dna is a code it's instructions right instructions to do what well my dna is instructions on how to build scott wingeter right well okay i used to work at nsa i know a thing or two about codes right there is no code that just pops into existence by itself without there being somebody who's a code maker. Uh, so to me, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. Uh, we're going to have to have you on the sh- another show and where we can go a little bit deeper into that. What do you think? I would love to, if, if you got a few minutes now, I'd love to expand upon something you said. Yeah, go ahead. So a couple things. Number one, a simple analogy. You know, we have these uh, robots crawling around on Mars looking for things. Imagine if they found something as simple as a penny. And, and you, they brought that home, and, and somebody, everyone would say, hey, there was intelligent life there. There's no other way to get this penny there. It had to be made by somebody. Even the simplest unit of life, a cell, a simple bacterium, is infinitely more complex than a penny. It's even more complex than our most complex computers. Mm-hmm. And to say, hey, that penny had to be made by an intelligent being, but life didn't, it, it, it's, uh, it's just absurd. It's, it's intellectually dishonest. Yeah. Now, going back to the whole universe thing. So atheists have a favored fear theory for explaining everything you just said. They said, no, 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 you're wrong, Scott. Let me tell you what's going on here. Our universe is special in that, uh, and our earth is special because there is an infinite number of universes out there. Okay. And we just happen to be in the one that could sustain life and create life. Hmm. It's nothing to do with intelligence. It's random chance. It's bound to happen given an infinite number of universes. Sure. Now, there's, there's no evidence for those universes. There never can be because we have access to nothing outside of our universe, right? Hmm. But this is the interesting thing. So uh, uh, the physicist, uh, the paralyzed one, I always confuse him with the atheist. Um, Dawkins, Dawkins, Hawkins. Hawkins, right? Hawkins. Hawkins. So he wrote a book in which he explained this, and he said... Brief history of time. No, this is a later one. Okay. So in the brief history of time, he was kind of agnostic about God. Yes, yes, you're right. But later on, he came out and he said, no, 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 we we don't need God to explain this. It's these universes. And this is what he said. He goes, in these infinite other universes, any bit of anything could possibly exist. For example, the moon could be made of Roquefort cheese, he goes, that's not science fiction, that's reality. Now, when people say, well, you know, you have to have faith to believe in God, it's, it's a false choice. I either believe there's a God or I believe there's a universe out there with a moon made of rope for cheese. You tell me which one is more credible, yeah. which one is, is, is more parsimonious with the evidence. And you can bring in a whole bunch of evidence. But this is what the 
uh, mental gymnastics that really smart people go through to try to deny the existence of God. They, they bring themselves in, into these absurdities. Well, I don't believe in miracles. A moon made of cheese isn't a miracle? Yeah. Of course it is. Right. Now, I'm going to actually quote uh, an atheist here. You used a, a word that I, I hate, uh, random. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote Voltaire. He says, the words that we use to describe chance is nothing more than an unknown cause for a known effect. Hmm. <laughs> that's deep. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's, that's exactly right. And the other thing I want to point out is just the absurdity of its face. So as a, as a historian, I'm, I love the history of everything to include words. All right. So I'm a big etymology geek. Uh, I would just simply like to point out you, you, flu you flexed on me your Latin. I'm going to flex on, on my Latin <laughs> on you. All right. Uni means one. <laughs> you can't have universe one, mm -hmm. yeah. one term. Interesting. So you can't have multiple universes. It, literally in its own name says one guys uh, <laughs> try again go back to the drawing board <laughs> yeah. i mean it's the universe by definition is everything that exists that's right and they're that's, saying, well, there's something that exists beyond what exists uh, it's yeah. yeah there's no evidence for it yeah zero mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. yeah out of nothing nothing comes mm -hmm. uh, so it comes down to that i think uh these are all very very simple scientific principles that are logical and easy to come to that conclusion about I don't understand what the hiccup is. Um, yeah. Well, I do. Uh, it comes down to uh, if there is a God who is sovereign uh, and has moral moral laws as well as in, in addition to making all of the natural laws, he's also made moral laws, uh, that means that I can't do anything I want. And it, it goes right back to the very first uh, sin itself. It wasn't that the apple, you know, in the garden had some sort of mystical power that imbued us with sin. It was disobedience. Look at what the serpent says to Eve. He goes, yeah, if you eat from that, you'll be like God knowing good evil. And I think really the lesson to take from that is you will be like God defining good and evil. And mm. from that moment onward, that is what mankind has been trying to do. And we're especially doing it in today's society. And that is causing all of the problems that we have. Yeah, and the really sad thing and all that, and I can speak to this as, as a former atheist, is the things you want to do that are opposed to what God wants to do end up hurting you. Hmm? They end up hurting other people. And what, one of the strongest areas for, for the truthfulness of the Bible is look at the moral laws in it hmm? and look at the uh, repercussions of obeying them and flouting them. And you can see when we obey them, good things happen. When we flout them, bad things happen. So yeah. all these things we think we want to do, our, our knowledge is just so limited. God can see eternity. He can see what's really good for us. And as, as the Bible says, you know, his laws aren't burdensome. Mm -hmm. They're there. They're, they're good for us. They're, they're like saying to a child, keep your hand off the hot stove. Right? Duh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's exactly. Well, we are just about out of time today, but I have had a blast talking with you. Uh, I, I want to have you back on the show where maybe we can jump down the rabbit hole a little bit more into theology. That would be really fun, uh, I, and uh, I would enjoy that. I've enjoyed myself, too. I really appreciate you having me here. It's been a great conversation. All right. We'd like to thank you once again, Jim, for coming on the show. Uh, make sure you 
check out Jim's website, justfacts.com. He has another, he has an app as well, Just Facts app. It's uh, available in the App Store. Um, I'd like to thank our host, Dockline Studios, for giving us this great space and this uh, opportunity to use this platform uh, to voice important things that we talked about today. And we look forward to having you uh, tune in for another exciting episode of Impolite Company. Thanks for listening to Impolite Company, presented by the Dockline. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate our podcast and leave a five-star review for us.